and welcome to the Collective Wisdom Podcast, the podcast that explores how to be a wiser version of yourself. This is a podcast that helps you to tap into your own inner wisdom and find the answers within you for how to live your best life. I'm your host, Kat Preston. I'm a certified life coach, and I help people to turn down the noise in their heads and tune into the wisdom in their hearts. Every week, I'll be asking my guests to tell their stories about what they've learned along the way and share some of their wisdom with us. I'm so thrilled you can join us. This episode of Collective Wisdom is brought to you by Forever Projects, a non-profit set up by Mark and Anna Domkins after they had returned to Australia having spent three years teaching in Tanzania where they adopted three children. Seeing firsthand some of the work that was being done by the orphanage Forever Angels to prevent children being abandoned in the first place, Mark and Anna started by simply sharing some of the stories of hope and optimism with family and friends back at home and were inspired by the response to Dare to Dream Bigger. They took that little seed of a dream and today Forever Projects works alongside four local agencies in Tanzania helping women to get access to healthcare and education when they most need it and empowering them to create a sustainable future for themselves and their families to live the life of dignity and hope they deserve. Through the power of the collective, they've been able to send over a million dollars to Tanzania to help transform lives forever. You can find out more about how to donate or become a subscriber to this inspiring project that is transforming lives at foreverprojects.org. 100% of your donation goes directly to helping those who really need it, which is why this sponsorship takes the form of a gift exchange. Mark exchanged his valuable time to share the remarkable story of the journey he and Anna have been on, and you can hear all about that wisdom in episode 15. And in return, I'm here to spread the word about their incredible project. Thanks so much to Mark and Anna and the team at Forever Projects for the inspiring work they're doing. Hello there, my wise friends, and welcome to episode 18 of the podcast. This week's guest has so many great achievements to his name, but the thing that drew my attention to his work is his mission to help everyday people become everyday innovators. Josh Linkner has just released his latest book, Big Little Breakthroughs, How Small Everyday Innovations Drive Oversized Results, and it's out today. April 20th, and I had the privilege of hearing the audio version, which is quite simply brilliant. Josh has poured all of his own creative skills into it to drive home his message that creativity is an inherent skill that all human beings have, but we have a tendency to grow out of it, not into it. It reminded me a little bit of Sir Ken Robinson's brilliant TED talk on how schools kill creativity. That said, his book and indeed his whole body of work is dedicated to showing you the ways that you can flex and build that creativity muscle in your own life. You'll also hear about the giant act of simple kindness that brought this interview about and his belief that if you pour out love and abundance into the world, it comes back to you in so many strange ways. So we were definitely on the same wavelength there. And also how the pandemic has been a giant reset button. Old patterns have been broken and we, we actually have an opportunity now to innovate and get creative around new ones. And then finally, he shares wisdom that we can all act on every day. As ever, all the links are in the show notes. So sit back, relax and enjoy this incredible man talking about one of my favourite subjects. I'm so thrilled to say that my guest today is none other than Josh Linkner. Yep, that Josh Linkner, the world-renowned number one most booked speaker on the subject of innovation and creativity in the US and author of four New York Times best-selling books on the subject, including The Road to Reinvention. Josh is the founder and CEO of five tech entrepreneur businesses with the combined value of over $200 million and has won multiple awards for the work he does mentoring startups, especially in his hometown of Detroit, which has had to go through its own reinvention since the auto industry largely decamped. His new book, Big Little Breakthroughs, How Small Everyday Innovations Drive Oversized Results, is the outcome of over 20 years of digging into and exploring the concept of human creativity. 
In it, he tells stories behind some perhaps lesser known, but nonetheless remarkable innovations. But more than that, Josh takes a look at the science that suggests that despite popular belief to the contrary, we are all born with huge amounts of creative potential that often goes completely untapped. The book is a toolbox of tricks and tips for how to unlock some of that latent creative potential in all of us, which is why I'm such a huge fan, because I believe that discovering more about what really lights you up and getting into that creative flow is where we find our sense of purpose and ultimately therefore happiness. Being creative is part of what it means to be human. I first encountered Josh when I heard him being interviewed by Mo Gaudat on his brilliant podcast, Slow Mo. And given that my heart actually starts beating faster when I see or hear pure creative genius at work, I thought I'd reach out on the off chance that Josh might want to come and talk to my audience, who are for the most part, heart-centered creatives themselves. Suffice to say that nobody was more surprised or blown away when with an act of simple but hugely appreciated kindness, Josh responded by return of email to say that he'd love to join me. So Josh, welcome to the show and thanks so much for taking the time out of what must be an incredibly busy schedule. I should perhaps mention that you also have four kids to join me today. And my first question really has to be the obvious one, which is how do you fit it all in? You know, where do you find the time? Well, first of all, thank you so much for for the privilege privilege of being with you today, and 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 hello to the uh, to the listeners. You know, I I'm a bit of an intense guy, and I don't know that's always a good thing. I mean, you know, sometimes I'm I'm a little over intense, but I, I do try to be thoughtful about time and how to use time. And it's hard because we all have so many demands. I mean, all of us, and we want to do more of seems like everything, and there's never enough time. But I do try to kind of say no to certain things to allow me to say yes to the right things. Uh, the biggest priorities for me are my my beautiful wife Tia and and my my kids. Uh, our our family and health is, is obviously critical. And for me, you know, I, I actually made a list one time. Like, here's all these things that I end up doing, and then what are the most important things? What are the things I I couldn't live without? And I love learning. I love creating. I love teaching. I love sharing. And and so I feel like if I'm doing those things, I'm kind of in the zone and I'm happy. And I try to not do the other things purposely to create time to do the things that I love. You know, sometimes you, you get to uh, to do some of them fused together. There are times, for example, when I'll do a keynote and I'll perform live jazz as a living metaphor for innovation. And so anytime I can get a twofer, you know, I can get to do two at the same time, all the better. But uh, it's never easy and I certainly don't have it all figured out, but uh, certainly give it a best shot. But yeah, you're, you're clearly doing a great job. And I think it is about that. It's just responding to what you were saying was what makes you happy, you know, what, what, what really resonates and just going and doing more of that is, is really, yeah, a brilliant way of, of tackling it. So just real quickly, I, was, I, you know, I've often I thought about this because, you know, when, when I talk to people and they want to be, I love to be more creative. I want to be more innovative, but I don't have mm -hmm. enough time. So I've often given people sort of a fun challenge and said, okay, what if you could take 30 days and, and you carved out like, 10 minutes a day. And all you do is think about how you could create an extra 30 minutes a week of more time. Do you think that's, you know, within your grasp? We're like, oh my gosh, I could totally do that. And even if it's one minute at a time, like, oh, I could move my printer closer so there's fewer steps, or I could leave 30 minutes earlier on my commute so there's less, less traffic, or, or, you know, just look for little teeny areas. So, and I, and I always say, would it be possible if you used your best creative self, could you invent 30 minutes of of, of productivity, of efficiency over, you know, per week. And I was like, oh my gosh, I could totally do that. And I said, okay, great. Now that you've done that, what if you reinvested that 30 minutes a week into being creative? In other words, being like heads up time instead of heads down time. Most of us are so busy doing our to-do list, we're heads down. But when you're heads up, you really notice the world around you and you really get to express creativity, which as you point out, is deeply intrinsically rewarding. So my only point is that we can actually use our own creativity to carve out the extra time that we want so that we can use more creativity. Yeah, I love that. I love that idea of how can you, and this this brings me into this question of how you define creativity, because you take it beyond being a musician or a poet or a writer or an artist, you know, it's about being creative as a parent, being creative at work, you know, do you want to dig a bit more into what creativity really means for you? Yeah, and I think that these terms are often misunderstood. Um, I've I've characterized them as the following. So I think about imagination as just anything that doesn't exist that you can imagine in your mind that could exist. So if I painted my car purple, that would be imaginative. 
Problem is that's not useful. It's not artistically pleasing. I, I'd probably get in a lot of trouble by, by, from my family. So even though I imagine it, it's true, it didn't exist yet. I wouldn't necessarily define that as creativity because there's no sort of inherent value to it. On the other hand, if I took a piece of blank sheet music and, and created a song and people liked the song or it was pleasant to listen to, that sort of now moves into the realm of creativity. In other words, you're still using imagination, but now there's some intrinsic artistic value to it. If I go one step further, then I think about innovation, which has what I would describe as utility value. In other words, there's something useful. So back to the, to the car painting. Again, painting my car purple would be imagination. If I painted a really cool pinstripe on it and it, it was pretty and people liked it and maybe you know people wanted to take photos next to it, there's no real inherent value. So that's not like innovative, but, but if it's kind of creative, that, that might be creativity. On the other hand, if I invented a little button on the dashboard where I could push it and the, the paint would change colors based on my mood, that might be innovative because people might be willing to pay for it. That could be a, a useful uh, innovation. So that's how I think of creativity and innovation separately. The one thing I would really point out though is this, we often you know only think that creativity counts if it's you know interpretive dance or music or a painting or something, but we can, as you, to your point, we can all be creative in our own ways. So if you are in a customer service role, why can't you be creative serving customers? If you're in sales, sales is a wildly creative process. Even jobs that you wouldn't think of like finance. I don't mean being criminal or breaking the rules, but I'm saying that in finance, you could be creative in the way that you interpret data, the way that you present a report to those that you're serving. So I think that there's an opportunity for all of us to be creative in our own roles, in our own craft. And when we do so, we elevate our work to a whole different level. And that I think unlocks a lot of possibility. Yeah, that unlocking possibility and actually bringing in this whole idea of play and experimentation and, you know, turning something that, yeah, like issuing a report or, you know, your your work function into something that's more, more creative suddenly sounds more fun. Yeah, it's really engaging. Now, what I loved, the thing that was really interesting to me was the scientific approach that you took, especially in this book. You know, it's about looking at the neuroscience behind, especially neuroplasticity, which, you know, there's there's a concept now that we're really digging into that you have kind of said, stated, we all have so much more creative potential than perhaps we believe. So I was just really interested to hear your take on what what kind of drove you to investigate that in the first place. Well, I, you know, when I set out to write this book, uh, uh, you know, zooming out, so it's called Big Little Breakthroughs, How Small Everyday Innovations Drive Oversized Results. And this is not a book for Elon Musk or Richard Branson, although they might enjoy it. It's a book for people like you and me, normal people that want to use creativity to advance the things they care about the most, whether it's their career or their family or their health or their community. So it's the notion of harnessing everyday people to become everyday innovators. And in doing this, I, I, the book is kind of broken into two halves. The first half is sort of making the, the case for creativity, why it's important, why we should care, and what the science says about it. And, and you're right, I did do an extensive amount of research. The back half of the book is about these sort of eight core obsessions that all of us can embrace, the obsessions of everyday innovators. But back to your question about the science, I mean, I really wanted to make a, a, a detailed case for it and, and make let people know it's not just my opinion, but that truly all human beings are creative. That's our natural state. We're, we're hardwired to be creative. Now, many of us over time have been sort of, uh, we, we've lost those skills. In other words, through well-intentioned parents and bosses and teachers, instead of growing into our creativity, we, we tend to grow out of it. Mm, but the yeah. research that you're referring to, neuroplasticity is the principle that the brain itself, the, the physical structure of the brain can actually change based on you know, over the period of your life. It, it used to be thought that, you know, your brain cells were fixed and that you could never regenerate new cells or, or new synapses or new connections. And, and science has recently showed us that that's incorrect. The, the, I took it one step further to, to coin the term inoplasticity, which is basically that your creativity your innovation ability is also not fixed. I like to say that creativity is more like your weight than your height. Try as I may, I probably won't grow, you know, a foot and a half by next month, but my weight I can control based on my behavior, nutrition, exercise, et cetera. And your creativity is exactly the same way. Any one of us can increase and build our creative skills with just a little bit of effort. And when we do so, it really becomes a significant competitive advantage. And as you point out, becomes deeply rewarding as a human being. Yeah. And I mean, I love that you even have a quote on your, your website I think it's Maya Angelou that, you know, the more you dig into creativity, the better it gets, the more you seem to be able to sort of tap into that as a resource. And what you were saying was, you know, not only do you highlight this science, 
but you then really dig into some of the tools for helping us to to tap into that ourselves. I mean, this is why it's it feels to me like the 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 bit about where you almost go through like a recipe for creativity where you start with the input and then you move through to the spark and then you go through a process of audition and you can step by step take any idea and take it from because often i think our best ideas stay as just that they stay as ideas and they don't move into like finished products or outcomes so one of the things that really just made me laugh so much was this idea of taking something and you use the the example of the the rapper little dicky and how he's taken something that instead of following other people's recipe he's just innovated and just gone totally the opposite so just using opposites as a way that's one of the tools for example that you can you can just say right let's try this out throw throw it at the wall but the opposite way around and see what happens well you know you're right about the this notion of technique and um you know it's it's frustrating to me because we have this belief that we should just automatically be creative and our best ideas should just fall onto the page perfectly orchestrated that's just not not how creativity works i mean think about that in any other field imagine if you had no training would you be expected to go try a law case or would you be expected to go perform surgery of course not that'd be ridiculous so why are we as creators expected to proceed with no tools no techniques and no training and so what i've done is it's funny in 1958 a bold new technology came on the scene for idea extraction and it was called brainstorming. Well, here we are years later, 2021, and we're still using the same technique, which is generally an outdated and ineffective technique. It's an ineffective technology. So I try to share with people fresher, more modern, more fun technologies to bring our creativity to the surface. And the one you're describing is called a judo flip, which is essentially when you're facing a challenge or trying to seize an opportunity, sort of make a list. What, what are the ways you've always done something in the past? How do most people approach this? What's the traditional approach? And then you draw a line down the page and just simply ask yourself, what's the polar opposite of each entry? What would it look like if you judo flipped it? And so you're referencing a, a rapper that I covered in the book. His name is Lil Dicky. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and he's the opposite. He did a judo flip. So most rap music is, is about these, you know, sort of African-American uh, men usually, but sometimes women that are very boastful about their money and their sexual prowess and how great they are. And, it's, you know, this is like this arrogance. And so Lil Dicky, first of all, is a white Jewish guy from Philadelphia. He uses bar mitzvah money to fund his first thing. So right there, even though I'm not saying that, that like white privilege and all that, but but he kind of had the opposite because most white people don't become rappers. It's actually hard to break in and be taken seriously. But then instead of becoming all macho and and arrogant and boastful about what a great you know guy he was, he's like this nebbish, nerdy, insecure guy, and he talks about his his feelings and his like one one time he created this video where instead of being boastful about his money he talked about how cheap he is yeah. another time instead of talking about what a what a total study is and how women flock to him he talked about his own inadequacies and so he did he judo flipped the tradition of the you know the, the prototypical rap star and as a result his videos have been seen two billion times he's now collaborating with ariana grande and justin bieber and such so uh, it's just one example of course of many but the notion is for all of us listening today when, when you're facing a challenge Instead of just obviously gravitating to the tried and true, say, wait a minute, what would it look like if I judo flipped it? What would it look yeah. like if I did the opposite of what others expect? Yeah, no, and I think that's that's what the book's so valuable for, is it, it really does, it, it is a how-to, it is a toolkit. You know, it's not just for sharing stories about other people who've managed to make this work. It's like, what, what would it look like for this, for me to apply it to what I'm doing? And then there was a, there was a final piece around the idea of, you, you highlighted like Bob Dylan, for example, Jimi Hendrix, they were ambidextrous. And this idea of it's not all about the right side of your brain, because normally we think about creativity and being sort of centered in the right side of your brain, but how maybe when we have that combination of executive function as well as the creative side of our brain, we almost need to go through that process. The things that help us get it from ideas and, and creativity to actually those innovations that make it out into the world is when we do have that analytical side of our brain cooperating almost with, with the side that's creative. Yeah, so um, it's it, there's fast. You're asking about neuroscience research, and one of the most fascinating things that I learned is even in the last few years, we the, the way the human brain 
is creative has become you know much more clear in our understanding. You're right. Historically, we thought that the right brain was the the creative wild side party brain, and the the left brain was this you know buttoned up suit and tie boring brain. And that actually is not true at all. It's it's, it's way oversimplified. In fact, creativity is the act of multiple brain regions that are interacting with one another. And it was fascinating to me to learn one one specific thing. They put jazz musicians. So as you, as mentioned, I, I'm a jazz musician. Mm. I've been playing jazz for over 40 years, and I love the music, the art form. But they 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 outfitted an MRI machine to equip a jazz musician to go in there and with a series of mirrors, be able to improvise while they were in real time watching the brain patterns. And they asked them to play like a, a basic piece of music that was already written and they saw what happened. But then when they, when they improvised, what they saw was fascinating. There was a part of the human brain that lit up like a Christmas tree that was the part responsible for new ideas. And that's to be expected. But the more fascinating part is that another part of the brain that's responsible for, it's like your filter, the, the reason you don't say inappropriate things at a cocktail party, that almost shut off. And so we jazz musicians basically, basically have trained one part of our brain to let it all loose and the other part of the brain not to care so much about it. And, and this is a learned behavior. It wasn't an inherent thing. It was just something that we learn as jazz musicians. All this points back to the fact that, you know, we, we think of innovators like Richard Branson or Elon Musk as, as these amazing people. And we say, that's not me. That's out of reach. I could never do that. This book flips that upside down and saying, wait a minute, what if we all could do that? in our own ways. Doesn't mean we're going to start an airline, but what if we all could be innovators and artists and creators? And, and that's what the, the really tried to prove with, with some of the research. You also broke down this notion of, of, I tried to take like an idea and stick it under a microscope. You know, if you stick an atom under a microscope, you can break it down into its individual parts like protons and neutrons and such. But I started thinking, well, could we deconstruct the unit the cell structure of an idea. And I really looked at it as, as a few different things. There's the inputs, as you point out, which are you know maybe previous insights or knowledge or experience coming in. The next thing I talk about is sparks. So when we say, I have an idea, it immediately beckons scrutiny. In other words, if you tell me your idea, then I'm going to tell you everything is wrong with it. Yeah. But a spark, by definition, doesn't feel like it's ready to be judged. In other words, it's the initial spark. It's not a, a finished piece of work product. So I like the notion of those initial beginnings are sparks, not finished product. And, and sometimes it's like the spark that leads to the spark that leads to the next spark that really becomes the idea. So let's not prematurely extinguish those ideas. Let them kind of uh, give them some room to breathe as sparks. Then I get into this process of essentially auditions, which is if you have 10 sparks that might be possible, instead of just choosing one and risking a lot, see if you could test them out. Is there a way that maybe you take your five best and, and do a little teeny prototype and see what works, what doesn't. And then once you have the ones that merit further exploration, then you refine them, which is the next step and kind of polish the, the, the rough edges off. And then finally, when you launch them, it, then I think about them as a slingshot, which is the last part of this anatomy of an idea, which is how do you then launch that idea out into the real world? My only point is that when you really take a hard look at something as mystical and mythical and un, not understood as creativity and, and take a scientific approach, it feels way more accessible to us all. You know, I, I've seen people say, oh, I could never do that. I'm not creative. I wasn't born that way. And then you look at it this way, you're like, wow, Wow, I could totally do that. That's within my grasp. And it was really my goal in this book is to help anyone who maybe thought they weren't creative reevaluate that position and think, we, you know what? Maybe, maybe I can be a creator. Maybe I can bring this to my job, my my family, my career, my community. Yeah, and it, and that that is the magic of it. It's it's like that that breakdown is almost like a recipe. So we can all follow a recipe, and then we can get a little bit more innovative. You know, once we once we've learned that we can cook, we believe that we can cook. We can kind of leave the recipe behind a bit. But yeah, for me, it's about imagining in a world, a world where all of that creative potential is suddenly let loose on problem solving and, you know, bringing that into the world would just be so powerful, which is why, yeah, such a value. I mean, think about the world we're living in right now. We're coming out of the COVID crisis and I feel like the world has hit a giant reset button. Yeah. Many of the patterns of the past have been broken. The way we work, the way we sell, the way we live, love, eat. And so when patterns are broken, new opportunities emerge. And I think what this is showing us is that we can no longer simply rely on the models of the past and expect the same results. And even at an individual level, you know, many of the advantages of the past have become commoditized and outsourced and automated. So how can we thrive as individuals? How can we thrive as organizations? And I think, that, you know, more than ever, 
the, the, the ability to harness human creativity has become mission critical. It's the one thing that can't be outsourced or automated. And I believe it's our source of sustainable competitive advantage. I don't think we have the luxury of ignoring it anymore because we're just going to lose in the marketplace. So that's perhaps not, not really the bad news, but, but just the hard, hard truth of it. The good news though, is that again, we can all harness these skills and that's, that's exactly what, what we do. And you, it's funny, I, I wrote in the book a little bit about, you know, if you think about a wizard, you know, like in the Harry Potter thing where mm -hmm. they, you know, they're literally using magic. Well, we know as human beings, we don't have magic. We, we can't fly. We don't have x-ray vision. So we, if we saw that and we thought creativity was magic, we would throw up our arms in defeat. But really what creativity is, is more like a magic trick. In other words, if you see a professional magician saw a person in half, you know that they didn't actually saw them in half. I mean, there's, there, there's a trick behind it. It was a learned skill and there was, there, it looked magical, but there was no inherent magic in it. That's exactly what creativity is like. It might look magical on the outside, but there's actually a way to decode it and to uh, dissect it and to, to, to actually apply those skills for all of us. And I mean, all of us. Yeah. And, and, and that is so true. And I think what you also highlight is that there is an awful lot of work. I mean, you've put 20 years into, you didn't just arrive at this point where you write this book and it's all just flowing, you know, you have been researching this and digging into it. And that, that is part of the process and, and having those things, ideas that don't work, for example, you know, the things that, that don't make it to the table, which is so valuable, so valuable. I would quickly say though that, well, well, yes, I have studied human creativity for a very long time. Um, I don't think that they, most people need to do that. I mean, the cool thing here is that I'm not suggesting people read this book and then study for 20 years or, or invest millions of dollars because creativity is an inherent skill that all human beings have. Mm -hmm. You can actually bring those skills to the surface very, very quickly with a little bit of, uh, of, of insight and a little bit of practice. Um, so it, the, the real key point here is that, so here's a quick example. There was a study that I covered in the book of a, of a university in Italy, and they took a, a group of people, almost identical, you know, same uh, geographic area, same income level, education, et cetera. They divided them in two, as most groups are often, you know, most, most experiments are like this. And they played each group a quick video and then asked them to take a standard creativity test. But there was one difference. One group was shown, shown a really boring video, like sheeps grazing in the meadow. The other group was shown an awe-inspiring video, like majestic waves crashing into the, the, uh, to the cliffs or eagles soaring, uh, you know, very inspiring things. Anyway, then they gave them the same test. Now, keep in mind, these are like, like the exact same people, two separate groups randomly selected. Here's what ended up happening though. The awe-inspired group outperformed the boring video group by like 80%. Yeah. Now, again, they didn't take 20 years to study it. They didn't have to get 30 PhDs. They didn't invest millions of dollars. They watched a three-minute video. And so if we can affect human creativity with something as simple as that, again, that's really encouraging to me because all of us can, again, with a little bit of effort, really bring those skills forward quickly. Yeah, and this is this is reminding me so much. I mean, I used to run an art school for children, and uh, we started with three-year-olds, and they are the best at just saying there are no rules. You know, I, I, before you've even finished giving them the instructions, they're in there with with all their imagination and creativity. It's it's like how do you unlearn some of that stuff that we impose on ourselves in a way and put ourselves in that position to just get more creative. So true about children. You know, I'm, I'm very, you mentioned I have four kids. Um, yeah. I have two older ones and, and I have four-year-old twins. But my older daughter, Chloe, was in school one day and maybe she was in fourth grade. And, and the teacher said, go, go, go draw a picture of a bear. She's okay, great. So she, but she, her bear didn't look like a normal bear. It was purple and weird shaped and funky. And she races over to the teacher and she's all excited to share her work. And the teacher says, Chloe, that's not what bears look like. Go back and redo it. And so what happened in that moment, you know, it, it didn't kill her, but it was a little teeny hit to her creative ability. And, and But if you multiply that times thousands and thousands of instances over our, our childhood, that's why many of us, it's been said that we enter kindergarten with a full set of colorful crayons and we exit high school with a single blue ballpoint pen, yeah. which to me is just tragic because if, if the one thing we know about the workforce going forward is we don't need, need people to just put their heads down and follow the rules. We need creative problem solvers. We need people who can use inventive thinking. And, and those skills are so critical, yet I, I, I really worry that we're, our kids aren't learning it enough. By the way, I'm not vilifying teachers. Teachers are heroes, but we are mostly living in an outdated system that doesn't support the needs of tomorrow, which is again, harnessing creative ability. Yeah, and 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 so much so it's you know these are the curriculums that they they've been designed, but we really and you were talking about the pause that we've all had collectively with the pandemic. This is such a great opportunity to talk about 
how can we make this different given that we've shaken everything up anyway um and i think your book has arrived just at the right time to uh to be part of that conversation at least so. thank you while we're talking schools because it's, it's really cool that you, you spent time teaching art to kids you know i've thought about just the curriculum so i learned long division by hand in in in, in school most of us did so i'm not being boastful but over the years i've created ten thousand jobs i've raised hundreds of millions of dollars of capital i've bought and sold companies and i've never used long division once so like that <laughs> That, that's kind of a useless skill. Why not have a course? I think there should be a mandatory class for all kids in, in middle school called making mistakes. And they learn what's a reasonable mistake. What do you learn from a mistake? How do you rebound from a mistake? What, what's, you know, I mean, what a useful skill or, or a challenge, you know, a whole course around, uh, around harnessing creative problem solving. And so again, it's again, no, nothing against teachers. Teachers are awesome, but I really do think we need to reevaluate the curriculum for the modern era that we find ourselves in. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I think, as I say, this is an opportunity to to really start to reflect on that. This is sort of, yeah, canvassing governments, not teachers, but but actually policy around our education system. So true. Now, when I was doing the research for this, we're, we're going to move on to your stories, because this is a bit I love where you get to be a bit creative. But I came across a story. So before we head into the story about an act of simple kindness that impacted you, um, I came across a story that I'm going to tee you up for where you were getting onto a flight with a prospective business partner. You'd, you'd been in a pitch meeting and they were still undecided who was going to get the contract. And I was just wondering if you would share that story because it's an act of kindness that, you know, on the spur of the moment, you decided to do something very kind. And in terms of a currency and, and coming straight back to you, it was just, so beautiful. Well, thank you. And and I think, you know, the, crucially, it, if, if you are using kindness and, and you're keeping score, that's not what kindness is. I mean, mm -hmm. I, you know, to me, I just try to give generously, you know, if people call me for advice. I'm not like, well, you owe me one. I just, you know, I feel like if you pour out love and abundance into the world, it tends to come back to you in strange ways. That is what, my the story yeah. they're referring to is um, I was my, I had a small business at the time and we had a chance to win a massive, gigantic account that would change our whole company. Like it was the biggest account we've, we've had. And the person making the decision was sort of this not so nice guy, kind of grumpy and mean and arrogant. And, and, and that he narrowed the, 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 field to three competitors. So there were three of us waiting to get this decision and he kept dragging the decision out. He kept delaying and we were all getting frustrated. Anyway, I bumped into this man and, and, and his wife at an industry conference. And at every coffee break, at every meal, I'm running up to him, trying to close the deal. Nothing worked. He was totally dismissive. Well, I saw him again at the airport. Turns out this guy and his wife were on the same outbound flight that I was. Here's what happens next. And I, I can't even make this up if I tried. <laughs> so, so this guy gets an upgrade to first class. He's a frequent traveler. And being the gentleman that he is, he takes the seat for himself, sends his wife back to coach. Perfect. Just, by the way, if I if I did that with my wife, Tia, I'd be sleeping on the couch for a year. Like that's just Amazing. never happening ever. Okay. Anyway, the next thing happens. I also got an upgrade. I heard my name over the loudspeaker because I'm a frequent traveler, too. And I walk on the plane and it turns out I have the seat next to him. And so your, your first instinct would be this is your big shot. This is your opportunity. Go in for the kill. Yeah. But instead, I chose the act of kindness route. And I really wasn't trying to keep score. I wasn't trying to game it. I just felt bad for his wife. I thought that was a silly thing. And so I said to him, he said, hey, why don't you sit down? We could chat. And I said, I'd love to. But I had a bunch of work I was planning to do on this flight. And I also noticed that your wife is sitting in back. How about we switch seats? You two can enjoy some family time. I'll get my work done back in coach. And, you know, I didn't think that much about it. And, and uh, the flight takes off. And But when we land, First thing we all do is we check our mobile device. And I look down at mine and I, I get an email from my office. It says, Josh, deal signed. So here's what he later told me happened. He said, you know, I was looking for a tiebreaker. All three companies were solid, but when you exhibited some humanity, when you showed that you could be innovative in the moment, he said, I, I, I decided to work with you. So he texted the folks in his office before the flight took off. And by the time we landed, the deal had been signed, 30 million US dollars. So that was why it landed with me, this act of kindness. And as you say, it's not about keeping score and it's, it very rarely happens that something you put out there comes straight back, especially to the tune of $30 million. But, but it's more around the idea that, I don't know if it's a law of physics, but kindness does have this way of just coming back to you. It's good karma, 
that that's that's the point of sharing these stories in the first place. So thank you for sharing that. And for the story that we like to share on this podcast, an act of kindness that's impacted you, that's stayed with you. You know, I, I feel like kindness, I, I just love seeing it everywhere. And so it's, it was hard for me when I knew that you were going to ask me that question to find one. I try to extend kindness where I can, and I, I try to um, acknowledge those those that give it. And, uh, you know, one one that came to mind was, there's this guy in downtown Detroit here uh, named Kali Sweeney. I live in Detroit. And he was unfortunately a really rough up- upbringing. He was, he was uh, abandoned by his parents as an infant. He grew up in foster care below the poverty line. And he went to a failing school system. He had terrible peer influences. And with little options, he ended up dropping out of school in the sixth grade. And so here he is, you know, he's no, no real future. He ends up getting involved in a gang and got involved in drugs and violence. By the time he was 16, he'd been both shot and stabbed. Oh, my Lord. At, at age 20, a friend said something that would change his life forever. They said, he said, you know, all of our people that we grew up with, they're either dead or in jail. And that was the wake up call that he needed. So he said, you know, I'm going to I'm going to get out of the gang. I'm going to really try to become a legitimate, honest citizen. It took him a 10 year period. He, he didn't have resources. I mean, mm-hmm. he was broke. He didn't have an education. So he took construction jobs, security jobs, anything that he could do to, to, to be a, a, an honest citizen. But at the end of that period, when he finally was successful, he didn't leave. He decided to stay. And he said, you know, I want to help others that had a challenging upbringing like mine, maybe choose the right path. So we started something in downtown Detroit called the Downtown Youth Boxing Gym. And it looks like a boxing gym, but really it's an educational facility. In other words, boxing is just the lure to get kids in the ring, but they're not allowed to train in the ring until they spend a couple hours in the back room working with an academic coach. And, and these, these coaches also give them like sort of personal coping skills and share, share with them a brighter future. He just believes this guy named Kali that, that every kid deserves a fighting chance. And so here's somebody who just this pure heart of generosity. He didn't pursue selfish pursuits. He, he went after noble pursuits. He wanted to help other kids. And here's the result. In the area around his gym today, even, unfortunately, the high school graduation rate is only 37%. The kids that go through his program, the high school graduation rate is 100% for yeah. 10 years in a row. So here's this guy. He didn't have a trust fund. He wasn't a billionaire. You know, he was a normal guy. He used some creativity and he used kindness to help others. And now he's literally changed the lives of hundreds of children in this very difficult community. So when I see things like that, I mean, I, I heard about a story years ago. And, and sometimes when, I, when I'm thinking, okay, I got to make a choice. Do I make the selfish choice or the noble choice? I think of him. And he's, really, he's inspired me to try to be a better version of myself. I, I'm not always perfect, of course. But, but, you know, when you hear stories like that, it's just so inspiring to know that, you know, other people have put put the, the greater good ahead of their own personal gain and, and have created beautiful results. And that's, to me, it's very inspiring. Yeah. And, and so much, it's so true that he really used that empathy of understanding how he'd ended up in that situation himself and how it's almost a, an inevitable path. You know, if, if you're not given the education, if you're not given those, those chances to get out, but then to sort of fish people out of the river yourself is just, yeah, fantastic. Fantastic. Well, thank you for sharing that. And then the story about a challenge is um, for me, because I think it, it also understanding that we all have so much more resilience and capacity to overcome challenges than perhaps we think we do is another way of accessing creativity. And there was one thing that you said um, that one of the biggest blockers or probably the main blocked creativity is, is fear. So I was just going to ask you to dig into that a little bit and then maybe share a a challenge that you've had to overcome. Well, you're exactly right. So fear, not natural talent. Fear is the single biggest blocker of creative output. You know, it's that poisonous force that robs us of our best thinking. And even in a normal brainstorm session, you, you might share your safe ideas, but you hold your crazy ones back because you don't want to look foolish or be laughed at. So I think actually, if, if there are leaders listening, job number one for, for leaders is to create a safe environment for your team where all ideas are celebrated instead of judged, even the bad ones, because fear and creativity cannot coexist. So if you have a fear-based culture, you've dampened the creative output of your team. And I talk a lot about that in the book. There's a lot of techniques and, and rituals that we can do as leaders to create a safe environment. And, and, and that's certainly been the case for me. I mean, one, one example of this was um, a rather personal one. So I was uh, 20 years old and I had this idea 
to start a company. I, that, pretty simple, but, but back in 1990, it was to assemble computer components and then I would sell completed systems at a discount on my college campus. And this was long before you could go online and buy a discount computer. What, you know, there were no discount computers. So anyway, I had this idea and I, I had a mentor at the time and I called up and asked for a $1,000 loan to start my company. And the mentor said, well, show me your business plan. I didn't even know what a business plan was. So I went to the library. Many of us might remember libraries. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, Back in I, looked the up, I looked up, what is a business plan? And, and I decided to write the best business plan I could. It was like 100 pages and had charts and graphs. And, and I, I went to uh, the, the shop to print them out. And I, I mailed it off to my mentor. And I called him up waiting for praise and, and excitement and, and a, a resounding support. Instead, here's what I heard. That's a terrible idea. That'll never work. Who the hell do you think you are running a business? You're going to fail. Yeah, yeah. And the, the sad part about that was, you know, those words really stung, but they stung worse because that man was my father. Are you kidding? And, and I don't think in retrospect that he was trying to be malicious. It's just, he was probably trying to look out for his son. And by the way, I had an okay relationship with him. He wasn't a bad person. And I lost him in 2007 to cancer. I, I wish he was here. love him dearly. But, yeah. but we often hear stuff like that and it, it, it can just sap our confidence and rob us of our opportunity. In other words, fear really gets in the way. And so I had a choice to make. I, I could either have quit or I could have chosen to, to, to go forward. And I felt at the time that if I went forward and failed, at least I'd learn something. But if I didn't go forward, I'd regret it forever. So I saved up some money by playing jazz gigs. I started my company and I never looked back. And, and hadn't I done that, I wouldn't be here today. I wouldn't have been able to start many companies over the years. And so I, I would just say for all of us, there's always that voice, whether it's our parent or our boss, even when they're well-intentioned, you know, that, that are trying to say, hey, stay within the lines. Don't go outside. Mm -hmm. Don't try something new. But history isn't made by those that stay within the lines. I mean, think who we admire from, from literary figures and, and, and inventors and heroes. These are people that, that, that overcame the fear that we all have, to be clear, and mm -hmm. they pursued something nonetheless. They, they went forward despite the fear. And I would just encourage people, even in small ways, you know, we, we, we ultimately can conquer fear one little bite at a time, one big little breakthrough at a time. And so instead of taking on something that's gigantically scary, take a little teeny thing on and see how it feels when you beat it. And then take on a little bit bigger thing and see how that feels. And over time, we start to build that creative confidence that we need desperately in order to, uh, to achieve greatly. Yeah, and, that, and that's so true. I mean, it's it's very difficult when it's deeply personal like that with with you know someone that you respect and who's plays a big part in your life. And and I think so many of us can remember a teacher that maybe said something that why is it that the stuff that sticks is when when you hear something negative like that and you kind of reinforce it. But just learning to and again, it's about this creative approach. Learning to say, what would happen if I lent into that and said what's the worst that could happen, but also what's the best that could happen, you know, rather than always looking at the worst case scenario. Yeah, really. Real quickly, you know, most people have a plan B. Have you heard that term? No. So most of us are overly conservative anyway. And then we have a plan B. What happens if your conservative plan doesn't work? What's an even more conservative plan? My suggestion with great love and respect is why not have a plan Z? So your plan Z is the opposite of your plan B. It's what happens instead of everything going wrong. What happens if everything goes right? What's the big dream? What's your calling? What would happen if you knew you couldn't fail? And I think there's, you know, I'm not saying we should pursue things carelessly, but but, but why let, let the, the fear hold us back with this horrible gravitational pull? Why not offset that a little bit with a plan Z? Yeah, and just see what happens. And that's back to playing and experimenting and having fun with it. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Now, I know I know from having done the research that you're a, a huge jazz guitarist. Uh, you, you know, you're, you're big into sort of your, your jazz guitar and, and have been, I think that's how you started out. You know, that was your kind of first profession. So as you know, we share a story around music and a piece of music that means something to you. Yeah, that's a wonderful question, too. So I, I have been playing music for over 40 years. I'm deeply passionate about the art form. And um, there's a piece of music by a guy named John Coltrane, who was a pioneer jazz saxophonist. Uh, and it was it's called Giant Steps, Giant Steps. So in jazz, there's a, without getting all technically geeky on you, there's a sort of a, a, a harmonic structure, which is like a chord pattern that is typical. And, and even though jazz is pretty far out there, there, there are some, not really rules, but, but there's, a, there's a, a structure that most jazz follows. Mm 
So John Coltrane in this piece, Giant Steps, didn't break it by a little bit. He went as far off as you could go from that. So in other words, there, there's only so many notes. Like he went in every step of this structure that he created, literally the furthest away from convention. Like you, there's no, it's not physically possible to go further away. Right. And the entire piece was written this way. The harmonic structure was the most bold, brash, stick the finger in the eye of conventional wisdom kind of approach. And that became his masterpiece. That's his, his most noted song and one of the top five, probably five influential jazz songs in all of history. So I love it because in Giant Steps, he, again, Coltrane worked up this courage to try the, the most bold and provocative thing he could even think of. And he found a way to make art out of it. And I just love that because, you know, he, he pushed the boundaries, he, he discovered new ground. And, and here we are 70 years later, still talking about it. Yeah. And that's such a magical, I mean, I love the way it's so on brand. So it's going to be, I and mean, we don't have any jazz on the, I'm only in season two at the moment. So there's no jazz on the playlist at the moment. And it's not, it's not something I really know much about. So for me, as you were saying, you know, I loved that even in your book, as the, the audio version has a little bit of jazz between each chapter. And that just kind of shakes you out of, I'm listening to a book and then suddenly this music comes on. And it's, again, it's another part of that, um, which I think from, from you know, the, the way jazz works is, although you're, you're not always playing, you just, you don't play a set piece, you know, you are actually innovating as you're playing, but you don't just, you can't just take any random set of notes. And then, you know, you, there are these sort of formulas to play, which is so much part of that whole process of getting into the flow, if you like. I, I thought that was fascinating. Yeah, thank you. And by the way, that song Gi "Giant Steps" is my literally my ringtone on my phone, and has been for years. So wow. if you were to call me right now, you'd hear you'd hear "Giant Steps." It's just a constant reminder of you know pushing the boundaries a bit. Yeah. But you're right. Even even within that structure, there he didn't. It wasn't a train wreck. I mean, there was still you know there was still music musical beauty as a result, and that's what creativity is. It's not just this crazy randomness. It's not like taking purple crayons and drawing over the walls. It's using a bit of a structure, some scaffolding, some technique to bring this skill set to, to the surface and deploy it to drive meaningful results. So that's what I tried to do in the book is give people those tools and techniques and frameworks and mindsets so that they could really take their own creativity and deploy it in a useful manner. Yeah, to do that improvisation, which for, for most of us would just be, I can't do that, you know, but it's like learning the rules and then learning how to break them. Phenomenal, phenomenal. So I'm really looking forward to hearing that music. And then finally, what is the wisdom? What's the one go-to nugget of wisdom that you you keep with you at all times? There's a few. You know, I, I collect famous quotes, uh, and there's many on my website. You know, one of them is is by a guy named John Cage. He says, "I'm not so sure why people are afraid of new ideas. I'm scared of the old ones." <laughs> Always love that. Brilliant. There's another good one, um, which is, "If you don't like change, you're probably going to like irrelevance even less." I thought that was brilliant. Yeah. So There's a little piece of wisdom that I said, you know, I'm not trying to put myself in that same category with those folks, but there was a quote that I would repeat so often to my team that they, they got sick of hearing it. And it was simply this, that someday a company is going to come along and put us out of business. It might as well be us. And I try to embrace that philosophy personally too. I try to put the Josh of six months ago out of business with a new version. I think it's incumbent on all of us to, to always be in a state of reinvention. It doesn't have to be scary. In fact, if you wait too long, maybe it's scary, but if you're always doing it, it's not that scary at all. But as the world changes at a pace like none other in history, I think it's a priority for all of us to be like leaning into the future and changing and adapting and reinventing at, at each part of the way, because we don't want to end up in, in a state of irrelevance. Yeah, it's this idea that, you know, you might think you've made it, and but there is no point in standing still because there'll always be somebody sort of chasing on the heels. So, yeah, it may as well be you, which is, that's that's really powerful. Thank you. And I've also been turning things around. So an act of simple kindness. What would you have as an ask for my audience other than go out and buy Big Little Breakthroughs, which I think is being released on April the 20th? So by the time this airs, yeah, it's out there. It's definitely worth reading. It's, uh, I, yeah, wholeheartedly recommend it to anyone who's got any creative drive, actually, whether they are in business. But, you know, it's also great for writers, that idea of marrying up the discipline of practice with that creativity, experimentation, play, and, and just, yeah, that, that's how you get from your idea to, to putting it out there. But do you have any other asks for the audience? 
Well, that's very sweet of you to say. And of course, I'd be grateful for, for those that choose to buy the book, um, not only for the commercial success. To me, that's almost secondary. It's that I think it's going to make a difference in your life. And mm -hmm. so to agree, it's an act of kindness to the, the reader because you're giving yourself a little opportunity to let your juices flow and enjoy more purpose and, and, and achieve greater things. Um, but, but, but beyond the book, and again, that, that's awesome if someone wants to buy the book, um, I would say a wonderful act of kindness is an act to yourself, which is in the next seven days, while these ideas are still fresh in your mind, see if you you can uncover just one big little breakthrough. And what I mean by a big little breakthrough is a small micro innovation, a little teeny act of creativity. Maybe it's the way you run your Monday morning meeting or the way that you um, make uh, coffee for the team or the way you conduct a job interview. Or in other words, look for a teeny tiny, not big, scary way to express creativity just once in the next week. And yeah. what will happen is that these ideas, they, they become contagious. So one big little breakthrough becomes 16 big little breakthroughs. And that becomes 38 big little breakthroughs. And before long, it, it, it seeps into who you are. It becomes part of your life because, again, that's who we are as human beings. That's our natural state. So I think a gift, uh, an act of kindness to yourself and ultimately in turn to the world and those around you is look for one big little breakthrough in the next week. Every one of us can find one. And when you find one, I think you're just going to you're going to light up with joy. Fantastic. That is just amazing. And I will definitely be doing that myself. Yeah. And, and, and I would also recommend that you go and head over to it's biglittlebreakthroughs.com, your website, which is, you, you can either go via joshlinkner.com or biglittlebreakthroughs.com. There are so many tips and ideas and quotes and even a creative creativity test, you know, on the website. So yeah, definitely worth checking out for anyone who wants to get those sparks flying and, and do something different. So Josh, thank you so much. I appreciate you so, so much for taking the time for this little baby podcast. And I wish you so well with, with the launch of the book and I'm sure it's going to be, you know, straight flying to number one. You're so gracious. Thank you so much for the privilege of being with you today. Congrats on your podcast. By the way, it's about to be a big little breakthrough podcast, and I don't think it's going to be a baby that long. So uh, <laughs> you have a wonderful sense, and I just love what you're doing. So thank you again. Thanks for making the world a better place, and truly a pleasure to be with you. That's so kind. Thanks, Josh. Really appreciate it. Bye now. What a great conversation that was. I hope you're feeling as inspired as I am. And what a gift of a comment about this being a big little podcast. I think that combination of creativity and generosity is definitely the secret behind Josh's phenomenal success. So you heard the challenge. In the next seven days, why don't you see if you can uncover a big little breakthrough of your own? And then head over to my Instagram page, Collective Wisdom Pod, and let me know. What's your big little breakthrough? The small change that you've made in your life that's making a difference. We'll be choosing one of those responses to send a free copy of Josh's book. As ever, thanks so much for listening. It's such a privilege to be in your ears and I really do appreciate each and every one of you. Thank you so much for listening. There are almost a million podcasts out there to choose from, so I really appreciate you for choosing this one and spending your valuable time with me today. If you found it helpful, I would be truly grateful if you would rate and review it as it helps others to find us. And if you haven't already, you can hit the subscribe button wherever you get your podcasts to be sure of getting every episode sent to you. You can find all the resources we talk about and more about my guests in the show notes over at collectivewisdom.podbean.com or you can find me on Instagram at collectivewisdompod where I'd love to hear any feedback, suggestions for new guests or comments that you have. I'd love to hear from you. And if you're interested to know more about how my coaching can help you, you can find more about that on my website at catpreston.com. Thank you so much for joining me.